You are listening to Uncommentary. So I want to talk to you about one of my favorite bookstores. Hearts and Minds Books is located in Pennsylvania. I've never been there, but I met the owner, Byron Borger, online, I think via Twitter. And um, I want to tell you why I use Hearts and Minds as often as I can. Uh, First, I'm a huge fan of independent booksellers. Uh, You know as well as I that when the great behemoth Amazon finally uh, began its quest to take over the world, um, that it is easy to order from Amazon, have the books delivered directly to your door. Uh, But over the course of several years, as Amazon was growing, a lot of independent booksellers, mom-and-pop type shops, uh, they really suffered, and many of them went out of business. Well, there's been a resurgence, and I'm really glad about that. Uh, And one of my favorites is Hearts and Minds Minds Books. And so if you'll go to heartsandmindsbooks.com, now this is what's simple about it. You're not going to see an inventory page. You're not going to see – you don't shop on heartsandmindsbooks.com in the way that you would at, say, barnesandnoble.com. Um, basically go to the inquiry page, uh, and you can send a message to Byron and ask, is a certain book available? Now they have hundreds of thousands of titles they can get, but that's where you start. Um, then you can go to the order page and you literally type in the name of the book that you want and the author, whether you want hardback or paperback, uh, and they'll respond to you and let you know what the availability is. Uh, how much shipping is going to be for your shipping options. Uh, And you say, well, doesn't that take a little bit of extra time? It does take a little bit of extra time. So if you need your book tomorrow, this may not be the route that you want to go, although they can ship overnight. But when you know you have some books coming up, whether they're textbooks or whether they're some other books, unless it's a special order or a self-published type of title that are harder to get, uh, if it's a normal book, uh, they can probably locate it for you. So you can go to the inquiry form and ask. Then you go to the order form and type in the information and uh, respond to all the information they ask for, and uh, they'll get back with you. And if you mention uncommentary in the uh, order blank, then uh, you'll get 20% off any title. You can also subscribe to the book notes where they feature several books uh, in each note with reviews, and you can order those through books and uh, heartsandminds.com as well. Uh, but I really encourage you to check them out, especially if, um, if only 10% of your book orders uh, you switch over to, to them. That'll be huge for them, and it won't cost you that much more. Uh, and I'm trying to do at least that. And so I encourage you, heartsandminds.com, and mention Uncommentary Podcast for a 20% discount on most items, and they'll let you know when it applies. So I grew up in the South, uh, in case you can't tell by my country fried accent. Um, I haven't been called country Batman for nothing. Uh, But I grew up in the South in a conservative Christian home, and uh, both of those things affect me still today. I'm uh, still conservative on a lot of issues um, politically and uh, conservative theologically, most people would say, I think. Um, And that affected everything, uh, still does to some degree. I'm still a follower of Jesus. But um, one of the things that affected was my view of the law. Uh, so not the biblical law, but <laughs> civil law. What's the function of the law? What's the role of the law? So I grew up a very uh, law and order person and uh, constantly uh, viewed um, what was right and wrong through the lens of Scripture, yes, but secondarily uh, the laws of the land. So um, when I grew up uh, a bit and began to research um, what the legal system is like and the experiences uh, of the legal system in America and how it differs um, 
between racial uh, situations, and I begin to find that there's uh, sentencing disparities in the criminal justice system. And uh, so there's some problems. I think that has become more obvious to more people over the years. Uh, But my background is that uh, everything that has to do with the law was ordained of God and is right, and we should support it. Um, As I grew up and grew in my thinking and uh, was no longer a child theologically, in my view, um, I began to realize that these things have to be evaluated through the lens of Scripture, Um, that Scripture doesn't uh, put its... uh, stamp of approval on everything a government does simply because the government does it. And so one of the things that, uh, that, that affects is what happens in the prison system. Uh, because obviously people go to prison, um, they're accused of being lawbreakers and in the way that our system works to, um, to get a better deal for yourself. If you don't think you can beat the rap innocent or not is, uh, you do a plea deal. So our Prison systems are uh, maxed out, some beyond max capacity. Um, and so I wanted to talk to someone who has some experience in that area. And so I contacted reporter Beth Shelburne, who is uh, in Alabama. And so we're going to talk today a little bit about Alabama's prison system situation. But I want you to be aware that this is not limited to a couple of prisons in Alabama or Parchment in Mississippi, or Rikers Island in New York. Uh, The prison situation in America is truly nationwide. And so as you're listening today, uh, I think it would be good if uh, you could think about your own state, for instance, Um, who operates the prison systems, how many prisons for profit are run within your state, how um, how much tax dollars go to support uh, the private prison systems, and whether there is a a pipeline that effectively uh, creates a dynamic where it is advantageous for people to be arrested and sent to jail because there's a profit to be made at the other end. Um, So keep those things in mind. And here's my interview then with Beth Shelburne. Beth is a longtime journalist with 20 years years of experience in investigative journalism and long-form reporting. What's the difference between long-form reporting and just reporting? Is there a word count that changes it into long form or is it like you get in the Atlantic instead of the daily news? I think it's you get in the Atlantic instead okay. of the daily news. <laughs> of course, I haven't been in either one yet. So, <laughs> uh, Your career has included positions uh, at New England Cable News, which I didn't know was a thing, in Boston, KFMB in San Diego. Were you on the air? Were you on-air talent in those? I was. I was on-air talent for 20 years. Wow. That's awesome. Uh, earned an MA in creative writing from the University of Alabama at Birmingham, she specifies, and a BA in mass communications from Auburn University, which, of course, you told me that, and it completely ruined my Iron Bowl joke I was going to tell. Uh, specific right, right. interests include uh, issue-based reporting, writing about criminal and social justice, mass incarceration, mental illness, and addiction. You and your husband, uh, as of this writing, have one child. Is that still the same? It's still the same. One wonderful child. Awesome. So, Beth Shelburne, welcome to Uncommentary. Thank you so much for having me. I'm always interested in uh, journalism and people who write about stories. Uh, how did you get involved in this? Was this like one day when you were five, you saw you know Walter Cronkite or somebody and thought you could be a female version of him but better, and that's how it went? Or was it later in life? I saw actually Leslie Stahl. Wow. Um, 
she was sort of my idol growing up and Jane Pauley. And, um, you know, I wanted to do TV news um, for as long as I can remember. And I did it for 20 years. Um, but while I was working as a broadcast journalist, as you know, the business of TV news has changed dramatically. So my career goal was always to get to 60 Minutes. Oh, wow. I wanted to do long-form journalism on television, and 60 Minutes is just the gold standard. And it just didn't work out that way. Mm. Um, You know, I stayed in local and regional news, and I ended up coming back home to Birmingham in 2010, which was not really part of the plan, but I lost a high-profile job that I had in Boston. A new company took over the station, and I was part of that bloodletting. Um, And I got offered a job at WBRC, which is the largest TV station in Alabama. And so we packed up and came on home in 2010, and um, it gave me a chance to sort of dig a little deeper in my reporting by covering stories in my hometown, you know, reconnecting to the place where I grew up, somewhere that I thought I didn't love and I didn't belong and I thought that I would never live in again. And it turns out none of those things were true. I do love it here. It is part of me. And there was so much work to be done. That's awesome. Um, So I um, started working at WDRC as an investigative reporter and news anchor. And about two years into my stint, I began covering stories about Alabama's prison crisis. And I've kind of been at it ever since. And now it's sort of my full-time focus of my work is writing about mass incarceration, criminal justice, and, um, you know, the ancillary issues that surround it that That you mentioned, mental illness, addiction, Mm -hmm. those kind of things. So I'm going to, before we jump in, I'm going to tell my one Leslie Stahl story and see if you know this. And you probably do since you're a fan. How did she get started covering Watergate? Do you know that story? I don't know that story. If I'm not mistaken, I think this is, I think I've got all the facts in order here. Uh, It was her first day in the office in whatever um, outlet she was with and where, whoever she was, uh, uh, whatever town, I'm sure it was Washington, but whatever outlet she was with, it was her first day in the office and everybody else in the office was going to cover something that was happening in town. And I believe it was a parade. So she was the only person in there. She got sent to the courtroom to cover the the same hearing that I think is featured in um, uh, All the President's Men there at the beginning where Robert Redford goes into the courtroom and listens to the pleas or whatever. And I'm pretty sure Leslie Stahl was also there because her editor had sent her over to cover this nothing story while everybody else was busy. I'm almost positive that's wow. the accurate version, yeah. Everybody else was busy at a parade. Something like that, yeah. You'll have to look it up and see if I'm exactly right on that, but that's pretty close. Yeah, she. I actually had a chance to meet her at an event in Boston, and she's lovely. That's awesome. And, um, you know, I told her that, you know, she was one of the reasons that I wanted to do this for a living, and she was so funny. She was like, please don't tell me that. It makes me feel old. <laughs> um, but, but she's, um, you know, she's still at it. Yeah. You can still see her on 60 Minutes. So um, I really admire women that are able to stick it out in that industry because I made it 20 years and that was enough time for me. Yeah. Because um, it's a tough business. 
So I found you on Twitter uh, some time ago. I'm not. I'm not. I have no idea. I don't have any memory of of what the subject matter was, other than you were probably in a in a discussion about prisons or sentencing or prison conditions or something like that. Um, so how did you get? How did that become a focus of what you do? Uh, because to be honest with you, much of my adult life, I didn't really pay attention to prisons. I didn't pay attention to the justice system. Um, you know, I had uh, some Old Testament verses that had spoken to me in, early in life. Uh, so I was pretty hardcore law and order. Uh, but I had a, a shift in my own thinking along the way. How did you get started in this? Um, I think I've always been interested in fairness and justice and um, equality. But as a TV news reporter, you know, kind of the bread and butter of television news is crime reporting. Mm-hmm. So I have been covering crime for decades, but it was never really thoughtful reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the crime reporting that you see on TV news is what I refer to as the mugshot parade. Yeah. It's, um, you know, arrest reports, police blotter material, right. very little context. <laughs> um and I, I think, you know, I, I started to become somewhat disillusioned with that type of reporting. I don't know, maybe 10 years in, you know, as I was getting older and more mature and becoming more woke to the world that we live in, I was realizing that, um, you know, I'm not sure that this represents the truth. Yeah. But the real, the real um, turning point for me was when I moved back to Alabama And in 2012, it started for me in covering a federal complaint that was filed on behalf of 50 women who had been incarcerated at Tutwiler Prison for Women in Wetumpka, Alabama, Mm -hmm. an infamous hellhole here. And um, it was the first time I had covered a story where the criminals are state actors and the victims are people that are in the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And it really opened my eyes to a lot of the systemic problems. And it also was one of those stories where I filed one very simple story on an afternoon and my phone just started ringing. Mm -hmm. And I started hearing from women that had done time there, their family members, women who were currently incarcerated started writing me. And so I spent the better part of two years reporting on the problems at Tutwiler, which had been denied by state leaders. They had really soft-pedaled the allegations, tried to downplay what was being said. And it turns out, after the Department of Justice was finished with its investigation, that women who had been incarcerated at Tutwiler had been raped or sexually assaulted for the better part of a decade by up to 30% of the staff. Good grief. So it was, um, you know, uh, it was a major, major black eye on the state, and it um, created a deep cynicism and skepticism within me about corrections Mm -hmm. and about um, the people that defend those systems because – they had done everything that they could do to block my access or to downplay the allegations. And it turned out, you know, everything that they were saying was false. 
and everything that these women were saying who really had no voice or power was true. Wow. Um, so I want to make one thing clear. You're in Alabama. And so people's temptations are going to be, Oh, well that's Alabama, but we know it's not just Alabama, right? Oh no, no. These problems are, you know, I think every state correction system is dealing with the same kind of problems on some level. Alabama is sort of, you know, the example of the worst of mm-hmm. what uh, dysfunctional correctional system can become. But no, it's not just Alabama. I mean, there's southern states that have very similar problems and are going through similar issues like Mississippi or Louisiana, Florida. Um, but even systems like California are horrifically overcrowded and, um, you know, deal with a lot of the same issues of illicit drug use in prison, violence, gangs, corruption among staff. So it really seems to be a problem that, um, you know, is across the board. And so it makes you kind of wonder, maybe this model isn't working at all. See, that's where I was going to go next. So talk to us about the model. What are some of the things that you're seeing that if uh, if you were God and you could just correct it with a swoosh, what are we looking at here? You know, um, I think that my ideas about what would work better are still evolving, mm. to be honest. Um, I'm, I'm still learning. Um, I'm still studying, you know, um, people and thought leaders that fall on the spe- spectrum of complete prison abolition to, you know, complete lock them up and throw away the key Mm -hmm. ways of thinking. I know what we're doing right now is not working. Mm -hmm. I mean, we call these systems correctional, but they're the exact opposite. Nobody leaves prison unharmed. So they are actually trauma-inducing and traumatizing. They're also... Um, This word that keeps coming up in the criminal justice world, criminogenic, it's this adjective where the environment actually increases the likelihood of crime happening. And it's a it's a criminal environment that cultivates crime. And the word you use is criminal criminogenic. 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 Okay. Yeah, I think it's kind of a cool word. But it's a terrible idea when yeah. you think about it that, you know, we're, we're taking people that obviously have made poor choices and bad decisions, and, and some of them have caused a lot of damage and pain and trauma to other people. So I'd never want to discount that. But, you know, we have to ask ourselves, like, what's the purpose of prison? Is it correctional? Are we, are we sincerely uh, supplying rehabilitation and opportunities for people to get better and do better, or is it just purely punishment? Are yep. we are they there just to punish people? And you know, I think that rhetorically we say that they're correctional, but I just don't think that our systems are delivering on um, you know that promise. Well, if there's right no what, if there's no educational uh, component to being incarcerated, if there's no training to do, um, you know, if there's no skills training that's included in in incarceration, then by default, it leads to correction merely means you're punished. So it's all punitive and nothing is, 
geared toward helping the person re-enter society uh, as a productive citizen and avoid the things that got them into prison to begin with. Is that what it, is that what you're seeing? Exactly. But even worse than that, I think that there is a void of meaningful educational um, work training and rehabilitative opportunities. Um, but on top of that, you've got people that are already traumatized in some way. I mean, the majority of people in prison have also been victims, um, have very high rates of illiteracy, mental illness, drug addiction. You've got them in this incredibly oppressive environment. And in Alabama, you have this robust drug trade Mm. happening within the walls of the prisons. So we're taking a population who is largely addicted, punishing them for that addiction or the results of it, because you know, you, you ask any police officer and they'll tell you, like, you know, 85, 90 percent of the crimes committed, even violent crimes, have some connection to drugs. Um, but we're taking them out of that environment and we're putting them into an environment that has even more access to drugs, but no way to escape it. Yeah. And so, um, you know, to me, that just doesn't make any sense. And. You know, we we shouldn't be scratching our heads wondering why the prisons are so violent, um, because, you know, what would we expect? I had a um, civil rights attorney tell me she represents a lot of incarcerated people, and she said, I think the very best place that a drug dealer can live right now is inside an Alabama prison. Wow. Like, business is good. And, you know, that is a terrible thing. because. These um, these facilities are taxpayer funded, yeah. so it's really on us to provide a safe environment. And if we want people to do better, we need to take the opportunities to get high away from them mm-hmm. and to provide them with something better. And um, that is that is not what's happening in Alabama. So I would say that's probably the most critical problem right now is the illicit drugs that are um, – that are being trafficked into and out of the prisons on a daily basis. You know what the number one trafficked uh, contraband drug is in Alabama prisons? Well, I, w- I mean, I would guess it's either opioids or heroin. It's actually suboxone. It's a replacement drug. Wow. I, I have no so, idea what that is. Um, suboxone is, um, you know, it's available uh, via a prescription from a doctor but it's a replacement therapy for people that are going through opioid detox. Oh, wow. Um, and there are some correctional systems that will supply Suboxone. Rikers Island, for example, the you know infamous New York mm-hmm. jail, um, supplies people who are coming off of opioid addiction with Suboxone, with a replacement therapy. Um, but, but Alabama prisons don't do that, and so... We've got this huge population of opioid addicts that are in our prisons, and they're, you know, desperate to get some relief. Yeah. And so Suboxone is coming in um, all kinds of ways, and, you know, it's considered a contraband drug. It's The use of Suboxone is somewhat controversial in the um, addiction recovery world because a lot of people think, well, you're just replacing one addictive substance with another, mm-hmm. kind of like methadone. Yeah. Um, but I've, I've talked to a lot of people about it and, you know, they've said people are not overdosing and dying from Suboxone like mm-hmm. they are heroin. So, 
so, you know, the, the thought is we need to reduce harm. And if we can get people to stop injecting street drugs, that can, you know, pass diseases or cause a sudden, you know, fatal overdose, then that's a good thing. So we get them off that and then we try to taper them off the replacement therapy. This I is, think that's, you know, yeah. the, the, the ideal way that that works. I think what sometimes happens is people then get addicted to the suboxone or the methadone and it becomes its own um, problem. But anyway, um, I, I always, um, I've, I found that interesting that, you know, there, there are other terrible drugs that people are using in prison. Flocka mm-hmm. is one of them, which is this synthetic marijuana that makes people go berserk. Mm. Um, and it's incredibly dangerous. That is widely used. Um, people are smoking and snorting meth, which, you know, everybody knows meth is just poisonous garbage yeah. that wrecks people. But I, I found it interesting that the number one trafficked contraband drug is is a replacement therapy drug. Yeah. It's amazing. You're listening to uh, my conversation with Beth Shelburne on criminal justice and mass incarceration, mental illness, addiction, uh, related to prisons. So we'll be right back after this. So what does it take to keep uncommentary on the air? Uh, technically, it doesn't cost a lot. Um, there's costs associated with editing. There's costs associated with scheduling, and there's not a lot more, but nobody gets rich off of podcasts that they do from their room and their home. Uh, It's all about getting the content out and uh, doing what people uh, like and maybe even need to hear. So I do want to encourage you to become a Patreon uh, or at least maybe a one-time gift. Uh, If you go to patreon.com slash uncommentary, you can become a supporter for as little as two bucks a month. I mean, that's like foregoing a 20-ounce Coke one time a month. And you can become a uh, $2 a month contributor, supporter level. Uh, if you choose the $3 a month, you'll get a podcast logo, an uncommentary podcast logo. If you choose $5, the gold level, you'll get a mug. And these are actually pretty nice um, mugs. If you choose $10, you'll get a sticker and a mug. Uh, if you go above that, then there's other stuff. I mean, if you've just got like money to spare and you want to give $250 a month, we could really do some upgrades around here. Um, but the reality is it doesn't take a lot and uh, a little bit helps out a ton and makes it worthwhile. And occasionally I can take my wife out for a meal. Uh, if you'd rather do a one-time thing, you can use PayPal, paypal.me slash uncommentary pod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentary pod or Patreon is monthly. And these are uh, auto drafts. So you don't have to write checks. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to go back to the website. Uh, the $2 is gone. The $3 is gone. And really uh, you never miss it. So that's patreon.com slash uncommentary as well. And now back to this week's episode. All right, we're back with Beth Shelburne. And you mentioned uh, before the break something about uh, drug dealers getting rich in prison. Uh, so my question for that is, uh, how do they move the money? My understanding is you can't just like open a cryptocurrency account in your cell and start shifting stuff out. So, and I'm sure they're not stuffing the mattresses with cash. So how are they getting money out of the prisons or are they? They are. Yeah. Um, so actually you can open a cryptocurrency account if you have a contraband cell phone. Wow. So, um, you know, much of the, much of the the movement of contraband, um, is happening through the use of illicit cell phones and prisons. Um, you know, the, 
And it should be noted, I think, that uh, most, I I shouldn't say most, but a number of illicit cell phones in prisons are brought in through guards, and guards know that they're there, and they look the other way for some kind of fee. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, a lot of the guards in Alabama look the other way simply for their own safety. They have to pick their battles. The staffing numbers are so low. They'll tell me, look, if, if they're on their phones and they're happy, I'm not going to go in and take their phones away and cause a riot. So, um, but, but yes, I do think um, officers bringing in phones and selling them um, for fees is a huge problem, and it's an under-acknowledged problem mm-hmm. by the system. Um, and I should also say, I think a lot of people in prison are using cell phones for just regular purposes. I don't think everybody who's got a cell phone is dealing drugs right. or extorting people. A lot of them get the phone because it's much cheaper than the exorbitant yes. cost that JPay or yeah. Securus, these corporate phone, prison phone companies charge. Yeah, people outside with a regular people. job will go broke trying to call into the prison. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's like so expensive. But um, but having said that, I think that a lot of the paths that this money travels is, is through phones, and they use these kinds of accounts like Walmart Money to Money or Green Dot accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know these um, courier services where there's no real record of the money exchange. I think some of it is done the old-fashioned way. Wow. The communication is done through the cell phones, but somebody on the inside will call their people on the outside, and whoever the um, corrupt staff member of the prison is will meet the outside person with whatever the exchange is, um, and and vice versa. And then you asked about them stuffing their mattresses with cash. Um, You know, they do stash prison money um, in their cells or in their cell blocks or in all the hidey holes within the prisons, and Prison money is anything from um, pouches of tobacco to cigarettes mm-hmm. to, um, yeah, yeah, honey buns out yeah. of the vending machine. And, <laughs> but but that is a currency. Yeah. So, you know, there's a whole economy inside prison where if you want to get a haircut from a barber, you're going to pay them with a honey bun. So there's a lot of legitimate transactions that happen that are just day-to-day life in prison. But, you know, the flip side is a lot of the illicit stuff that goes on is managed through prison money. So I've been told there's a um, there's a a former captain at one of the maximum security prisons who had this huge stash of prison money. And he would take um, prisoners, you know, accounts or, you know, take money away from them. When I say money, I mean, like, you know, 20 packages of tops tobacco um, to sort of get them to do what he wanted them to do. Mm -hmm. And I I was really trying to understand this, like what good would this do the officer? How is he going to get money from 20 pouches of tobacco? And the man who was explaining this to me, an incarcerated man was saying, no, that's not what it's for. It's, it's leverage for him. Mm. You know, he's he's not going to cash it out, but it's a, it's a means to control people. And so, um, and he kind of, you know, called this an economy of extortion. Wow. You know, that when you've, when you've got this kind of currency and then you've got actors that are participating in 
illicit activities like the cell phone trade or drug trade, you know, it's an easy way to get leverage over somebody. I'm going to take, you know, $25 in prison money from you because you didn't do what I wanted and I'm going to give it to him. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. So um, it's really fascinating. And I, I wish that somebody would write a book about the economies inside prison, both illicit and legitimate, mm-hmm. because I think it's really it's it's fascinating. And it's kind of an untold story of, you know, what's what's gone on um, in think, our prison boom in the United States. One of the things that um, drew my attention to your Twitter feed is that you've highlighted stories. Um, I think David French actually picked one up and put it in his newsletter uh, back around Christmas, I believe. Um, and the stories of some incarcerated people uh, who've been in for a long, long time over either very minor uh, crimes that they committed when they were very, very young uh, or crimes that they committed uh, when they were addicted when they were younger um, Mm -hmm. or things like that. So these are not mass murderers who are looking for and you're trying to get sympathy for them. These are people who uh, are in because of uh, typically some kind of three strikes in your outlaw or something like that. Can you explain how those work and uh, maybe even a couple of the stories of people that have been affected by them? Yes. Um, In fact, I've been working on um, a body of work about Alabama's three strikes law. It's called our habitual offender law, habitual felony offender law is the full name um, for a couple of years. And it was the basis of my master's thesis at UAB. And I'm actually editing a story right now that should be published um, in the Daily Beast sometime in the next month or two called The Castaways. Oh, awesome. And it's about, it's about this population of people that got the harshest punishment next to execution. Mm-hmm. So life without parole, which is a terminal sentence, you're never getting out of prison. Right. And they got it under our three strikes law for crimes that um, – you know, the, the amount of harm that these crimes caused is relatively low, uh, you know, on the spectrum right. of terrible things that can happen to people. But because of the way the law was written, the sentence of life without parole was mandatory. If somebody committed a Class A offense, which is rape and robbery and arson, but it's also robbery and burglary mm-hmm. and drug trafficking. So um, the man that I think you were referring to in the story that I put out on Twitter in December that went viral is a guy named Willie Simmons. Yeah, thank you. And he's an older black man that um, has done 38 years on a life without parole sentence for a $9 robbery. Mm. And he was, um, you know, using drugs, a totally drug addicted he had three minor property crimes on his record. I believe it was receiving stolen property and forgery. And he, it was a crime of opportunity. There was a man in his front yard. Willie was high at the time. And it was essentially a mugging that turned into a tussle where they were rolling around on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, Willie stole the man's wallet, which had $9 in it. And he was charged with first-degree robbery, which is, you know, armed robbery and is considered a Class A violent offense. Mm -hmm. So he um, had a very short trial. His 
his attorney was court appointed and did not call any witnesses. And in 25 minutes, he was given a death in prison sentence for that. I'm not saying that he was innocent and he's not saying he was innocent. I mean, he needed to be held accountable. You can't go tackle people in their front yards and steal their wallet. (laughs) But, you know, I think if we want to, like really be critical about our system, which we should be because it's in crisis, we have to ask ourselves, why are we punishing people the way that we are? You know, who are we sending to prison for the rest of their lives and why? Yeah, there's not a, there and, is not a rational support that can be made for keeping a man in jail well, for that long when 20 years ago he could have been rehabilitated and put on a path to a better life. I agree with you, but there are a lot of people that would disagree, and they would say, you know what, you've had chance after chance after chance, and you keep making bad decisions, so at some point, you lose all your chances. Um, I just don't think that that's the kind of world I want to live in. I mean, you know, human beings are human beings, and if my child misbehaved, and she had a really rough week and misbehaved, you know, three more times, I wouldn't banish her to the basement forever. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I would I would increase, you know, some penalties for her and try to get her attention and hold her accountable and work with her and see what was going on and see if we could work through it together. But, um, you know, to, to tell someone that you are not worthy of redemption for something like that, yeah. if you are banished, you know, from society for the rest of your natural life, I think it's cruel and unusual. I mean, I have actually grown to disagree with the sentence of life without parole for the majority of cases. And that's a controversial position to take because there's many people serving that for murder that have taken somebody's life. But, you know, what's also true is that people change, even people that have committed terrible crimes. And, you know, our prisons are so overcrowded and the number of people that commit these kinds of crimes is so high, we just simply can't afford to keep everybody in until they die. It seems like to so me, need- yeah, it seems like to me uh, that we are dealing with overcriminalization on the, the one end of the spectrum where too many things are crimes that can get you A, into jail at all, or B, into jail for long periods of time where if the if the issue wasn't even a, a crime it wouldn't hurt anybody not, not the person who committed it not not the not society as a whole and then on the other end of that you have sentencing where even from an economic perspective it doesn't make sense to keep someone we'd be far better off if we invested the thousands the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars that it has that it has cost to keep uh, Mr. Simmons in jail for all of these years into getting him an education or getting him job training or skills training or something for the 10 years that he served in jail for robbing a man in his front yard and then getting him out, putting him on parole and letting him get a job where he doesn't have to rob anybody else. He's free from drugs. It just seems like the the strategy of punitive with no other option is a failed strategy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's prison first. You know, that has always been our go-to. And the architects of these kinds of laws, these really merciless laws that, you know, banished people to prison for life sentences or worse, life without parole, mm-hmm. um, they they didn't consider any of that. I think 
they were kind of done in the name of public safety. Yeah. You know, look, if you're going to keep committing crimes, you lose all your chances and, and we're going to you know send you to prison where you belong. But, you know, what they didn't consider is that a lot of these folks have many underlying conditions that have gone unaddressed in our communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and that many of these folks are young people. And so 20, 30, 40 years down the road, they're going to be completely different people. Yeah. And if we insist on keeping them incarcerated, why are we doing that? We're yeah. really just warehousing people at that point. So um, I agree with you, but it is an uphill battle in Alabama. I'm working with a coalition of advocates and formerly incarcerated people to try to get lawmakers to rewrite this law, to abolish it, or at the very least, to grant people like Mr. Simmons some relief. I mean, our governor wants to build $900 million worth of new prisons, and we think that, you know, a better solution would be to look at the people that we're incarcerating and ask ourselves, do they really need to be there? Yeah. And that doesn't cost $900 million. And how to keep some people from getting there in the first place probably wouldn't be a bad question to deal with either. Absolutely. I do think that lawmakers here are are definitely open to um, increasing alternatives to incarceration on the front end. Mm-hmm. Thank goodness. You know, the mindset is changing about alternative courts and, um, you know, community corrections, things like that, drug prevention, addiction services, mental health treatment. Um, but that still doesn't change the fact that our prison population is almost at 170 percent capacity and 30 percent of the population is over 50. Wow. So if people, the research shows people start aging out of criminal behavior in their late 30s, early 40s. So why do we have people in their 70s and 80s right. still in there, right. um, you know, with double the health care costs and really no public safety benefit? Mm. I've been talking to Beth Shelburne about criminal justice, mass incarceration, mental, Ill- mental illness and addiction. Uh, all very important subjects. Beth, where are you on Twitter? Is it at Beth Shelburne or is it something else? It's at B Shelburne. And Shelburne has an E at the end, correct? It does, yes. And if somebody wants to read your work, uh, what's the best way to find something you've written? I have a website, just it's sort of a landing board for many of the stories that I've published. And it's just my name, BethShelburne.com. Excellent. I also work part-time as an investigative reporter with the Campaign for Smart Justice which is part of ACLU of Alabama. So some of my recent work specifically about Alabama prisons has been published there. Awesome. Well, Beth, thank you for being on in commentary today. Thank you for having me. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at Uncommentary Pod. Please rate and review and whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use. Uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com uh, on your Facebook page or if you tweet the link or retweet the uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solideo Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcasts.